1: To another edition of Godpod, it's me, Graham Tomlin, and uh, this edition that I'm about to introduce to you is uh, not our normal one, where Jane, Mike, and I get around a table to talk about theology. But it's uh, a, an event uh, which we um, which took place in St Melitus College recently, and what you're about to listen to is the discussion following a fascinating uh, talk by Fleming Rutledge. Now, you may know Fleming Rutledge. Fleming is um, uh, a um, Uh, was one of our speakers in our Generous Orthodoxy uh, series of lectures. Um, Fleming is actually um, an American Episcopal priest. She's an author, a theologian, a preacher. Uh, She was one of the first women to be ordained to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church in the United States. And she's uh, widely recognized across the United States, Canada, the UK, and beyond, uh, as a as a brilliant preacher lecturer speaker uh, and writer uh, her particular big book recently was a book called the crucifixion uh, which i read on holiday a little while ago a magnificent book really really good book on different aspects of the crucifixion took a long time to um, to write a little bit less time to read but it's a big chunky book uh, and really well worth uh, looking through it's won all kinds of awards and um, is a, a really good read. So we had a remarkable evening with um, Fleming, and uh, she had just given a lecture, uh, which was entitled, By the Word Worked, How a Speaking God Tells Us Who He Is, uh, thinking about preaching, and uh, how preaching is a means of God speaking to us. And One of the things she emphasized in her lecture was this sense of confidence that preachers need to have that God speaks to us through um, the preaching uh, of the bible and uh, what you're about to listen to is a conversation following on from that um that particular lecture and it involves um fleming it involves uh, jane williams it involves chris tilling our tutor in new testament it also involves uh, willie jennings uh, willie jennings is um uh, a well-known theologian um from yale university uh, he is um the uh, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies uh, in Yale Divinity School. A really fascinating figure uh, in theological life. So if you want to just listen to this, uh, it stands alone as a discussion on preaching and the Word of God. If you want to listen to the uh, lecture from Fleming herself, then you can go to the St. Melita's website and you can listen to that as a background to the discussion now. But either way, I hope you really enjoy what was a fascinating discussion as you listen to this episode of God Podcast. Um, Maybe just if I can begin just by getting um, the three of you just to kind of give your immediate reactions. Um, What are the kind of thoughts that uh, remain with you as you've heard uh, the themes that that Fleming's been exploring this evening? So, um, Willie, do you want to start?
2: Well, first, I want to thank you for the invitation. Glad to be here. And thank you, Fleming, for a brilliant, brilliant presentation. So much of it struck me. And I was, if I could have said amen, if this would have been a Baptist church, I would have been saying amen. But <laughs> I wanted to. Uh, You're allowed to say amen out there. Come on, come on. Let's Pentecostal <laughs> here. But there was so much that was wonderful. I especially appreciated your, your brilliant advice about preaching in light of the living Jesus, which I think is so important. It struck me that so much preaching could continue the way it is as if the resurrection did not matter because so much preaching does not need a resurrected Jesus. And so listening to that was so, I think, so incredibly important to, to put a note in our, all our minds about the significance of a living Jesus and not just an ethical Jesus.
0: Um, yes, like Willie, I really want to say thank you, Fleming, and I particularly want to say thank you on behalf of um, the clergy here and the, the ordinance in training, being given that commission to have confidence in the Word of God, uh, and I, I loved the way that you said it does, it isn 't confidence in yourself. we all know that we carry the word leaking out of us, dribbling it about wasting it but but the Word of God it can still uh, we can still trust it and be confident in it and, and so that that recommissioning for all of you who are preachers and will be preachers um, is, is just I could weep with the joy of having heard you say that. Thank you.
3: Chris. I feel energized after that. I, when, when God speaks, when God uses us frail human messengers, a miracle happens, and that happened for to me tonight, just to feel that bolt from heaven, the, the glory of this commission. Um, so thank you uh, very much. That, And uh, I suppose one of the things that I've been reflecting on purely selfishly as someone who is usually listening to the sermon rather than giving the sermon is how to cultivate expectation when you know the sermon might not be the most energizing, (laughs) might be ethical, you know, I can say I'm going to have to pray more or read my Bible more at the end of this sermon. Again, how how do we cultivate that kind of expectation? Is one of the things I'm left with? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Is that a question? It's a question.
4: Yes. We're going to follow
3: up in a minute. Yeah, exactly. For a friend. Yeah.
4: You know, that's really an important challenge to those who essentially uh, are in the pew rather than the pulpit. I have so many friends all over the United States who say we just can't find a church, we just can't find a preaching, we just can't, don't know what to do. And I don't have any answer for that. I I do think, it's kind of pitiful in a way. I remember one uh, congregation, a congregation I knew well in another city in America, and um, the congregation got so fed up with the preacher that the vestry went to him and said, we're going to give you a week's residence at the College of Preachers. And it didn't do any good at all. (laughs) So it's, uh, when there isn't any church available where the preacher seems to, I've known people who've who've gone to African-American churches just because of that. We would have church with all that that means. I've known people who have gone to all kinds of weird offbeat denominations or no denomination at all just to have a sense that the preacher really was caught up by a power greater than herself or himself. But when there isn't anybody, I don't know what you do. You can get together with some of your fellow Christians and say, let's go to see so-and-so and talk to him about it. But it's difficult. But above all, though, if you find one or two or three preachers or teachers of the Bible, encourage them. Tell them how much they mean to you. Tell them how much what they're doing is strengthening you. That's that's so important. And then I think people might start gathering around you, your friends, your acquaintances, who knows. But it is difficult when there's not a whole lot to choose from.
1: I, I was quite interested by your, your comments about, um, you, know, you mentioned involvement in the sort of civil rights movement earlier on. And a couple of times tonight, you sort of touched on the kind of African and American experience. It strikes me that one of of the the things about that that movement was the kind of coming together of where you started in in, in sort of politics and preaching in something like the speaking of Martin Luther King. You know, many of his um, political speeches were kind of sermons, but they were kind of deeply sort of political at the same time. And there's something about the... Um, you know, and, and there's a kind of tradition of that. Jesse Jackson and others after that. That there's something about. I mean, maybe this is a question for Willie, much as much as yourself as well. But w- what is there in that tradition that um, you, you sense that you know speeches like that? They 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 make things happen. You know, the I Have a Dream speech uh, didn't just wasn't just a nice set of words that you just agree with. It galvanized something. And that actually it was something that really powerfully affected a whole generation of people. And that coming together of the kind of political and the kind of sermon uh, was very significant. Is there something about, what would you say, the the tradition of preaching within African-American churches that other churches have a lot to learn from, it seems to me?
2: Well, I think there's there's two really important things to keep in mind. The first is that it's story-shaped preaching, life-shaped in story. And often preachers forget that we're inside story. And then the second thing, which is crucial, is that we're inside God's story. And I think this is so important. The, the civil rights movement at its heart was a proclamation of life yet inside God's story, a story that's bigger than the United States. The United States can play inside that story and its, its hopes and dreams and rhetoric as a small thing inside this larger story. And when you lose sight of those two things, or if you have one without the other, if you try to talk about God without story, it sounds like very dry doctrine. If you try to talk about story without God, who cares?
4: <laughs>
2: but if you hold on to those two things, that's, that's very powerful.
1: Maybe other people have got some um, questions. I'm encouraging the others on the, the panel to ask this as well. But I guess one of the things that um, struck me as I was listening to you, Fleming, was um, I mean, we live in an age that probably would have preferred it if the Bible said in the beginning was the image rather than the word. Because we are a, 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 a world that is um, transfixed by the image um, Read recently, another you know, most popular activity for teenagers in Britain today is sitting at home watching YouTube videos. That's kind of what you do now. And I guess my my question is, you know, how, how does how does in, a, in, a, in an age where the the image was less dominant, mm-hmm. uh, where the word was much more sort of strong, where kind of political speeches uh, were kind of listened to, um, it, it may have been easier to kind of get a hearing for the word. But in in a, in the in a in a world saturated by the image. Um, how do we recapture a sense of the power of the word? And what is that relationship between word and image, do you think? How do you explore that?
4: You know what pops into my mind? The power of Donald Trump's words. The power that he has harnessed and spread. The language that he uses. The insults. The uh, dog whistles. The appeals to the people that he has gathered around himself. It, it, I, I don't want to make a, a glib comparison to hit somebody like Hitler, but people who are tyrannical and gifted in manipulation are able to use words for great evil. And we can talk about images all we want, but and I know what you mean, the image... The whole power of the image is ubiquitous, no question. But the word has not lost... Words have not lost their power to shape and to call forth. Um, The difference is that the words of somebody like Donald Trump say call forth something that's just under the surface, just waiting to be brought out, whereas the word of God... Creates, calls into existence, as Paul writes, Paul's in Romans, Paul, Paul, oh, sorry, God calls into existence the things that do not exist. So there's, uh, it reminds me of Tolkien, how Tolkien insisted in The Lord of the Rings that Sauron could not make anything. He could only pervert what was already there, he could not create anything new. A very basic uh, Christian doctrine. Uh, creation ex nihilo so um well that's enough i I just want to not fail to say that words continue to have just as much power as they've ever had i think images or no image now that's not a full response but it's just a a way of approaching it
1: and the youtube videos that teenagers are watching are usually full of words that are affecting and shaping and, and and the ones that we watch too so you know very seldom is it image without words it's always words there, I guess that's what you're saying Jane
0: yes I am um, when, when you were speaking, one of the things one of the images that came into my head was the Word of God um, lying in a manger with no human words, the Word of God um, learning how to speak does is that uh, and that that sense that, um, that that's always been strong in the Christian tradition of of uh, the end of our words that's in relation to God. Do you do you want to comment on that? Help me think about that more.
4: About that, I never to me. Hmm. I was thinking about how the words were given. Uh, I, 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 That's really interesting. I said that, that's really interesting. I never thought about that. So I've learned something. Uh, that what popped into mind as you were saying that was well, the words were the words of the angels and. Uh, and the words that God had already spoken to Mary. But the idea of the the word without words, the infant, well, that's really provocative. Please say some more. I <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: um, Like all great ideas, um, I've pinched it from somewhere. I think it's probably Austin Farrer. Austin mm-hmm. Farrer, oh, one of the great un- underrated theologians of the 20s. Uh, and I think he has this image of the, the child um, who... Uh, Calls down human love, who is willing to be helpless and wordless uh, in order to not to demonstrate his power, but to demonstrate our power, our, our ability to love the vulnerable. And so, I, I suppose I, I I absolutely am challenged and moved by what you said about the word, but I also want to hold the wordlessness as um, as a as a, a proper response to the word of God in some cases and a response that God God's self makes um in the incarnation
4: that connects with that connects with the problem of not having not being able to find preaching where the word is spoken you want to be the recipient of this word that's not being spoken but anyway, that is provocative, Jane, and I'm very and I'd love to see what Austin Farrell said because i greatly admire Austin Farrell but haven't read as much as I would like to. Did you write about that in your little Christmas book? Because I haven't read the whole thing. Did you write about that idea?
3: She hasn't read it. She writes so Let much. that be on record.
1: <laughs> there is um... some. <laughs> very naughty Chris isn't he really (laughs) there there is a related question here that's come in from um, someone in the audience which is uh, uh, how do we understand the God who speaks and our call to speak the gospel when we're engaging with those who cannot understand words so those without the mental capacity to comprehend for example
0: I suppose the only thing I would recommend is um, I don't know if you've come across the writings of Francis Young She's a, um, a British New Testament scholar who ha- has a very se- severely disabled son and she's written a lot of her theology from that perspective um, uh, and, uh, and particularly from the perspective of um, that, that the challenge to uh, our understanding of humanity as is, is basically bound up with autonomy and um, p- power over our own destiny and that kind of thing and, um, and, and therefore how much we actually have to learn um, I mean, I think one of the things she says, her son is called Arthur, one of the things she says is that Arthur will find heaven much easier than most of us. Because actually Arthur has never had the illusion that he can manage on his own. And that's, that's just really, um, again, deeply um, profound, isn't it? Mm. Deeply profound. Francis Young. Francis
1: Young. Chris is a New Testament scholar, someone who deals with the words of the Bible a lot. Um, what are your sort of questions? What are the things that you're um, uh, you're sort of pondering as you, you you hear this? You think of this this idea, of the word spoken through the words of Scripture.
3: Well, it was an encouragement. I, I better read it. Uh, you know, I thought better get round to reading the Bible at last. Uh, so, thank you very much for that. It's not a bad idea, um, Chris. No, but but seriously, one of the things I've been pondering in relation to, particularly the Apostle Paul is how does how does the, the word "power relate to the crucified Jesus um, because you you spoke about uh, Jesus is alive and powerful you know you emphasized that um, and I wondered if you could speak to what that looks like for um, this crucified Jew who is risen by the power of God in second corinthians paul is is at pains to to talk about what apostolic ministry looks like. And it looks like the cross and the death and the invisible resurrection almost. You know, it's it's something a little bit, as you were saying, that the invisible power of the Word of God. Perhaps you could speak a little bit to the cruciform nature of the power of the Word of God.
4: Well, that is so important that it really makes me feel a little sheepish that I didn't say anything about that I was sort of aiming in one direction but um, my power is made perfect in weakness is one of Paul's more important utterances and uh, spoken from the depths in his case I don't we don't know what his weakness was but obviously something that caused him a great deal of anguish and with which he wrestled And God said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul obviously linked that with the crucifixion. Something is going on on the cross. When Jesus was crucified, God was doing something. And that in itself means power. If what God was doing was allowing himself to be defeated, then that's what God was doing. Does that make any sense? I'm trying to make it clear that the crucifixion was not this bad thing that happened to Jesus on his way to the resurrection. There is something in the crucifixion itself that tells us who God is. God well, let's see. Jesus said, what is it? Um, I, t- I give my life and I take it up again. There, that's more or less it is, right, in the Gospel of John. Um, that's very important. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. Yes, that's it, isn't it? Um, Jesus is not, I think to be seen as a victim because he's a victim in a sense he's completely helpless but this was his destiny from forever that's the famous, fascinating discussion about would God would, would Jesus have died if, God, if people had not sinned that's another question for another time, but the general tendency of the church, the the, the the word of the church has been that that God did not just decide to do this through Jesus because we, Adam, rebelled. Something about the nature of God is to give himself even unto hell, if that is what is necessary but even the word necessary is a problem because all of it emerges from God in the end and with God there is the only necessity is that God should be God and that God should not deny himself I'm in deep waters here I'm not really (laughs) terribly I'm not terribly good at at doctrine but um, Um. the cross, I remember Lou Martin saying, J. Lewis Martin saying, that Christ suffered defeat on the cross. Those were his exact words. And I've been thinking about that ever since. Um, we don't want to divide this father and this son. We don't want to say, well, the father wasn't defeated, but the son was defeated. It's, there's something more ineffable there. It is in the nature of God to give God's self unreservedly to the bitter end into hell. Now, in the book I wrote, The Crucifixion, the chapter called. The Descent Into Hell, this is a little bit beside the point, I guess, but I will just take the opportunity to say it. That chapter, The Descent Into Hell, is the chapter that I care most about because, for one thing, it took me years to write that one chapter. In, In a sense, it took all my life because I have been consumed ever since I was very young by the problem of evil. And I don't know what to say exactly about the crucifixion and the problem of evil except to say that there is no other place in the history of human thought, to my way of looking at it, that has given any kind of adequate response to the problem of evil. The cross is not an answer to the problem of evil. As David Bentley Hart has so memorably said in this regard, um, that we should always have rage against explanation for evil And I just think that is so powerfully true. You start explaining evil, and you're already participating in it. Um, So I think it's very important to hold on to this idea that Jesus descended into hell and, and emerged victorious. That chapter is... I think, the most important thing I've done. And my speechlessness on the subject just tells you how even if you've gone to the very bottom, I think you have, you still don't know, you still don't understand, you still don't get it. Why, why, why? But somewhere in the dereliction of the Son of God, we see God. And there's nowhere that we can go or have ever gone or been that, we, that he is not there before us.
1: It's maybe that sense that Calvin talks about the, um, the, uh, that, he had, that in, in that moment where Jesus experiences the absence of God, even God knows what it is to suffer alone, even without the presence of God. God knows the absence of God in that sort of strangely paradoxical way so that even if you're in the experience of suffering where you feel that God has abandoned you, everyone has abandoned you, God knows what that's like. And maybe that's just a little glimpse into that sort of same same mystery. Just to kind of, I mean the last ten minutes or so we, we've got together and I'd love to bring us back to some of the uh, you know, we've got many people here who are, are preachers um, and uh, some of the things we might sort of learn from this. I mean, one of the questions from the the audience is, um, in an era of TED Talks and arguments that millennials can't concentrate for more than 15 minutes, uh, how do we preach the Word of God well? Simple, practical question. How long can we preach in a world where the attention span is shorter than it ever has been? I mean, Willie, you probably teach a lot of millennials, and um, I don't know what your experience of this is. Any advice you have on, on uh, you know, how you preach into a into a world where the attention span is so short?
2: Well, um, context is everything. In the, uh, the churches I go to, uh, a nice 30, 50-minute sermon is great. There's some context where, I was saying this earlier, I've been invited to come and preach 10 or 12-minute sermons, which is a stretch for me, but I can, I can do it. I can squeeze 30 minutes into 10. <laughs> you know, I, I, I am of the mind when it comes to the question of time, is that that question ought to be placed inside the question of who. And who is doing the preaching, and who are you preaching about? Um, To me, that determines what makes sense. And, And whether it's a millennial or someone who's closer to my age, I think that's the whole point. If it's clear that the person who's preaching doesn't have a sense of who they're preaching about, then two minutes is too long. If if they're clear about that and they're clear about who that is, who they're preaching about and who is listening, then they can kind of figure out how much time is actually necessary. Yeah, thank you.
4: I wouldn't have thought of that, but that's exactly the point. Uh, and I'm really glad you said that because... Um, I watch young people carefully. I don't see young people as much as I'd like to because most congregations that I speak to, I don't really speak to congregations that much anymore, though, by the way. I don't accept invitations to go to churches now. I accept invitations where I can speak to students and to clergy who are younger, uh, the upcoming generations, in other words, people who are a lot closer to my grandchildren's age than they are to my age, (laughs) quite a lot. And I do believe that adolescents and young adults are very, especially adolescents, they are so quick to notice anything fake, anything that's not heartfelt, anything that's just a lot of verbosity. I have spoken within the last decade to uh, my husband's high school, and I've watched, and I've been with my husband's. Uh, to Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia, to uh, hear other speakers that my husband has uh, endowed to come and talk to the young people. And I, if you talk to them about something that engages you, it engages them, unless you're really a rotten storyteller. <laughs> um, I, I think we've been sold a little bit of a bill of goods on this thing about people not being able to, i think people are able to listen it's the question is if they're listening to something that's florid and overblown and fake they immediately turn off and some of them are going to turn off anyway because they're immature but um i th- i think we should not be so convinced by this i mean
2: there's Somebody something i was, I was gonna, there's there's something you said toward the end of your your wonderful talk that I wanted to come back to. It, it, the comment you made about what it's like to preach and then be angry about people not hearing. And I wonder if you could just talk for a moment about the vulnerability of the preacher. Of the preacher. Because I know for, some, for so many people, that that's really where the rubber meets the road. How do you live with the vulnerability of preaching?
4: Oh, that's, well, that's, yeah, that's a little different from what I thought you were going to say. Um, I had to shift in it because I was getting ready to say one thing now. Well, this is a little bit controversial. I, I have for a long time been friendly with leaders in the church who I admired who would say privately that they were worried that the candidates that were coming to them did not have much ego strength. And if you don't have, and that's something that is God-given and it's not something that you can just create. You can't just say, oh, I, I'm going to have more ego strength. It has everything to do with your family of origin and the circumstances in which you were raised as a young child and adolescent, a young child mostly. Um, But when you have – I don't think that people who are really insecure are apt to make particularly good preachers because it's – a very insecure person is going to be very self-conscious, I think. And sometimes some of the best preachers have – I'm thinking of one in particular, one of the great preachers of the 20th century was actually a very insecure person within himself. But somehow he never let that into the pulpit. Now, I don't know what the secret is, but a preacher has to take risks. A preacher has to face the possibility of rejection all the time. But that doesn't mean that you should be a wounded healer. I love what Peter Lee, the Bishop of Virginia, once said in my hearing. He said, I don't want to hear about any more wounded healers uh, coming to me wanting to be ordained because they can display their wounds mm. uh, he said I am looking for people who have strong resilient uh, interior strength because preaching is extremely demanding and exhausting and, um, and you, you're putting yourself out there uh, and, and you're risking rejection and just as the apostles risked rejection and in the end were pretty much all probably martyred or exiled or something. Um, but you can't be a masochist either. So it's a delicate balance. But I do think that it, there's, there may be some personality traits that, help a preacher along a kind of um, inner core of some kind or just in the case of the great preacher I'm thinking about it was Theodore Ferris peerless preacher in Boston Trinity Complex Square in Boston very insecure person unhappy person but he was a powerful preacher he was completely taken up by the truth of what he was saying. It it overmastered it, it over his insecurities. But that's a gift, isn't it? I mean, it's just it's ineffable. It's hard to describe, and it's you, you sort of know it when you see it. But you're, you might make some mistakes too. And I taught preaching to thirty students once. It's the only time I've ever done it officially, at Wycliffe College in Toronto, and I came to the conclusion that you really can't teach the art of preaching, you can, you can take a person who's already been gifted and guide them. That's what happened to me. I was going the wrong way. My God, somebody got hold of me. Anyway, these are just thoughts.
1: And it is, um, <laughs> I'm reminded by something Richard Baxter, the great Puritan preacher said that in a sense the, f- the first person you preach to is yourself. And he says, you know, preach to yourselves the sermons that you preach before you preach them to others. And you can kind of tell the difference between a sermon that's been internalized and preached to the yourself and someone that hasn't been processed at all through the person's own life. And maybe that's one of the distinctions between a sermon that is kind of embodied and comes as something that has been, you know, we sometimes we speak of it from the heart as opposed to just a kind of florid texture of words that hasn't really affected life in any way, which is I think you'll think about if you, if you sense that, you, you want to listen to it. It doesn't matter whether it's five minutes, 15 minutes, 45 minutes, you will listen to that kind of sermon that's worked in the life of the person who's preached. I it. think
4: that may be the most important thing that's been said at all. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I have heard of and have experienced being experiencing a kind of reconversion it, by my own preaching. I've heard people say that, and I know it's true. Sometimes when I've been completely drained and don't think I can get through another sermon, I, am, I experience the power of the word as I'm preaching, as I'm reading the scripture that I'm preaching from.
1: We've uh, reached the end of our evening. It's nine o'clock. We promised to finish by then. We could go, go on with the conversation for a long time. It would be great fun to do that, but uh, we've um, come to the end of our, our time. So um, I just want to say uh, to, to Willie and to Jane and to Chris, thank you very much for your um, uh, participation, your questions, your conversation, uh, but especially uh, Fleming to you. You've really um, re-energized us, as Chris was saying, um, w- whether we're those who, who have the responsibility of, of preaching or, or listening, I think what you've done for us tonight is to, is to kind of increase our expectation that something happens. In the preaching of the of the Word, that when God speaks to us in Christ and through the even through the kind of weak fable words of the preacher, something happens, and that 's a wonderful thing you 've given.
0: Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.